Hello and welcome to Planet Health. Today we're doing something a little different to usual. As this is episode number 25, I wanted to celebrate a quarter of a century of episodes by doing an Ask Chris episode, where you, my lovely listeners, ask me questions. And if this is your first time listening, then you may be wondering who the hell I am and why people want to ask me questions in the first place. And that is a good question. So I'm Chris Cara, a fitness author and experienced nutrition coach, and in this podcast I'm something of a global explorer as I discuss the world of health and fitness. If you've listened to a few episodes and you do enjoy this podcast, then please consider hitting the subscribe button because it really does help. Right, we're going to kick off this episode with the first question, which comes from Stephen, who's actually one of my nutrition coaching clients who lives in sunny Spain and has recently moved to a new house over on the coast. And every time I speak with him, I'm very jealous because it's pretty much always raining here in Wales and he's always able to enjoy glorious Spanish weather. Today, Stephen says, I have a question about losing weight, then putting it back on again. This has happened to me five or six times in my life. How do you keep it off when you get to a good weight? And that is a very good question. I know it's something that he's personally found frustrating. And it is frustrating. You know, you make great progress. Then you have a few slip-ups, a few too many snacks, a few too many big meals out. And then this turns into a few bad habits. And before you know it, you've gained weight again. Of course, I'm not just talking about Stephen here. I'm talking to everyone who struggles to maintain a healthy weight. Because let's face it, weight tends to be easier to put on than it is to take off. You can work hard for three months going to the gym and eating perfectly prepared meals just to lose two stone, and then you can put it all back on in a few weeks just by sitting around eating crisps. That's life, unfortunately. So how do we tackle this? I'm going to say there are lots of ways, but I'm going to give three tips for this episode. Firstly, goals. When people have the drive to lose weight, they tend to set a number. So you, you may have done it in the past. You want to lose a stone or 10 kilos or whatever it is. And then you do it and then you celebrate. But then when you've hit the goal, you may think, well, I've done it now. I can enjoy life again. And this may be fine if you just wanted to lose weight for a specific reason, like for a wedding. People want to fit into a wedding dress. But after the day and the photos have t been taken, then they think, well, I've done it now, and the weight all comes on. And if that's you, then fine. But for many people, you lose the weight and you just don't know where to go next. So I say when you reach your goal, like Stephen, you set a new goal instantly. And it doesn't have to be another weight loss goal straight away. That's important to remember. It could just be, I want to maintain my weight of 79 kilos for the next three months. That's a really good goal. You don't have to get down to 75 or 72 kilos. You can just say, I want to maintain my weight for the next three months. It could also be a physical goal something or a fitness goal, something different, like I want to run a 5K in two months or I want to run a marathon in a year. Just having a goal is something to work towards and it's going to keep you in check better than just aimlessly continuing on as you had been doing. The second of my three tips is motivation. And this is an easy one. So whenever you're reaching for the crisps or say you can't be bothered to get out of bed for your early morning walk or whatever it is, stop to think about what motivates you. 
Are you losing weight because you want to be a role model for your kids or for a cause? Or is it for health reasons because you want to avoid type 2 diabetes or a cancer, for example? Or do you want to lose weight just because you want a new partner or because you want to show your ex-partner what they're missing? It doesn't matter what it is. Just try to keep these motivations in mind and that really does help. Have photos around or items that remind you of your motivation. The constant reminder coupled with that goal that I just talked about setting, that really, really can make a big difference. And thirdly, habits. To get to weight loss without counting calories or being on a crash diet, you have to practice good habits. The kind that we discuss on this show week in, week out. Things like walking, eating slowly, trying new exercise, enjoying more vegetables, getting good sleep, and hydrating well. If you keep practicing the good habits, it suddenly feels strange when you don't practice them. So, as soon as you lose weight, don't stop doing the good things that you have been doing. Keep walking, keep eating slowly, keep making at least one homemade whole foods-based dish each day. Whatever habits you worked on during your weight loss journey, continue to do them when you reach your goal. It sounds so obvious, but you know, this is the stuff that helps. So when you combine all those things, having a goal set, having your motivation in mind and continuing with the habits you learned, that is gonna help prevent you from bouncing back and forth from gaining weight, losing weight, gaining weight, losing weight, and it'll keep you more balanced. So Stephen, I really hope that helps you and I'm sure we'll discuss it more in depth uh, in person soon. The next question is from Joe, who didn't actually leave where they're from, but they've asked, what is the healthiest dish in the world? And that's quite a good question, Um, but it's obviously difficult to say. I'd say that every country has its share of healthy dishes and unhealthy dishes, even in the UK, which isn't seen as the most healthful country. You know, here in the UK, we have some really unhealthy foods. For example, the traditional fried breakfast known as the English breakfast. Bacon, sausage, egg, fried bread. It's swimming in fat, cholesterol, salt, calories, and very little nutritional value. And then there's stuff like the deep fried Mars bar, which is just chocolate and caramel deep fried in batter. Uh, Yeah, and it's obviously not the healthiest thing. But the UK then does have some healthy foods. Things like stews and soups, which use lots of fresh seasonal ingredients. Like, for example, cowl in Wales. That's one of the dishes we discussed on episode 11 with Mark Reese when we looked at the healthy habits of Wales. I definitely recommend going back and listening to that. So that just illustrates that every country has not so healthy dishes, but also has some very healthy dishes. As for the healthiest in the world, this is completely subjective, but sticking along the lines of the soupy kind of stewy lines I was just discussing, I think Italy's famous soup, minestrone, could stake a claim as the healthiest dish in the world, albeit with a few little tweaks. And minestrone is something I make very often, at least once every two weeks. You can use any veg, but when I make it, I use onions, carrots, celery, swede or turnip, cabbage or sprouts and courgette with some tomato passata. Together this is packed with nutrients, it's low in calorie, high in fiber, very high in taste, but the only thing missing is protein. And obviously you get some protein from the vegetables, but not enough to either lose weight or, like me, try to build or maintain muscle mass. So I'll always add in some extra protein in the form of chickpeas for a whole foods protein source, but I'll also add in some 
TVP or textured vegetable protein, which is very high in protein and very lean. Suddenly you have a very, very nutritious, complete meal. Uh, and you can add in some pasta too if you think you need some carbohydrate, maybe before or after a workout, for example. So for me, that minestrone with a few little tweaks wins it as the healthiest dish in the world. Of course, there are loads of other dishes out there that are really, really healthy. But for me, I, I like that one. So moving on, and we have a question from Michelle, who lives in Minnesota in the United States. And I really appreciate you listening over there. For me, Minnesota is a real exotic location. Um, so I'm going to abbreviate the question a little. But Michelle asks, I was wondering if you had any experience with helping people who are recovering from anorexia to regain a healthy lifestyle. I was severely anorexic as a young woman and I'm 67 now. Today I walk for several hours a day and work out a couple of times a week and I still have loads of energy. I know that eating disorders have deep psychological roots, but for me the enjoyment of having a strong and healthy body helped overcome my fears. Thanks and keep up the good work. So really thanks for that uh, question, Michelle. What I'm going to say is I'm going to be honest and say that when I took my uh, PM1 qualification in nutrition coaching, I was cautioned that eating disorders were out of my scope of practice, which completely makes sense because, as you mentioned, they have deep psychological roots. And many people want to lose weight or maintain a healthy weight and a nutrition coach like me is ideal for them. But when you have an eating disorder, it tends to be a mental health professional that will be able to do the best work. And I'll say that I do have personal experience of eating disorders due to somebody close to me suffering from anorexia. And thankfully, like you, they're now in a much better place and they do a lot of fitness and walking and live a very healthy lifestyle. So you can recover and you can make exercise a very healthy part of your life again, as you've already uh, realized. So to answer your question, I don't have any experience advising people with eating disorders and I wouldn't really like to start. And if anyone is listening to this and believes they have an eating disorder, whatever that may be, then I definitely recommend you seek help from a professional in mental health who specializes in that field because you can find relief, recover and go on to live a very healthy life like Michelle. And I do really appreciate you sharing your story. As a side note, I think the best thing to do is to learn to deal with the disorder before starting an exercise plan. Obviously, exercise is very supportive to a healthy life, but it's best to seek professional help from someone who's going to help you ensure you're doing it for the right reasons. What I will do is link a resource I found on the subject called Managing Activity and Exercise with an Eating Disorder from Physiotherapy Eating Disorder Professional Network. It's a PDF with more on the topic, so I'll add that to the episode description for anyone who wants to check it out. And that ends the questions from some of the listeners. And again, thank you very much for sending those in. Uh, I hope they have made sense and I hope uh, I've kind of satisfied what you're asking. Uh, I'm going to finish by asking some of my own questions to me. So number one, do you have any new interviews planned? And yes, I do. I have a couple in the pipeline, including a returning guest, although I haven't scheduled a time to do these yet. Uh, so they may be coming in the next few weeks or next few months. Second question, for a bit of fun, where are your listeners from? And this is now a global podcast. Obviously, primarily my listeners come from the UK, mainly England and Wales, um, but around a quarter of the listeners come from the United States, uh, in states such as New York, California, Texas, Washington, Minnesota, like I just mentioned, North Carolina, Georgia and Florida. Uh, the last count, there were 29 of the 50 American states listening, which is really cool. 
Okay, question number three. This is episode number 25. Are you going to make another 25, 50, 100 episodes? And to that I'll say, I hope so. It all depends on the response I continue to get. So far I've had a great response, and I really enjoy making these podcasts. The thing is, they do take time to write, record, edit, publish and promote, usually around three to four hours in total. And that's around three to four hours of paid work I don't do each week to get these podcasts out. Plus, I always end up paying for some of the platforms, which is fine, but I need to keep getting a positive reaction to make it feel worthwhile. I may start playing around with doing one episode every two weeks if my workload gets a bit too much, because that way I can spend more time on the episodes and keep the quality high. Uh, But if people are still listening and sharing and enjoying the podcast, then I'll keep it to one a week at least. And the fourth and final question I'm asking myself is, how can listeners help? And the biggest way you can help is, of course, by listening. Uh, But it's also by subscribing, if you haven't already done so, or by sharing the podcast with friends, family, and social followers. Subscribing, it's free and easy. You just hit the subscribe or follow button. And if you have done this, then please consider reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you listen and share it with anyone who could use my wise words. But honestly, just having you as a listener and listening in each week is helpful enough, and uh, I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoy making them. Uh, Of course, you can also do things like buy a coffee for me via the link in my Linktree link in the episode description, uh, if that's something you want to do. Otherwise, that wraps up this episode. If you want to let me know what you think, you can by sending me a message. Again, my details can be found on that Linktree link. Uh, You can also send me questions ahead of the next Ask Chris episode, whenever that may be, maybe in a couple of weeks, maybe in a couple of months. Um, But we'll see. Anyway, I'll be back soon for another trip around the world. But until next time, thank you very much for listening.